Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 22. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 38. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 882. These Particular verses are the conclusion to Luke's account of the Lord's Last Supper with His disciples. A a supper that has been our focus for the past several weeks. And so as we come to the conclusion, we realize that these words are really Jesus' last words to His disciples before He will leave to go to the garden where He will be betrayed and arrested, leading eventually to His crucifixion, and burial. These are Jesus' last words to His disciples. Let us give our careful attention to them this morning. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 35. This is the very Word of God. And He said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, Here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the reading of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would remember your promise that it might not return to you void. Father, may the same Spirit who inspired Luke to write these words, may He now be here among us, opening our minds and our hearts to to understand and to receive and to love and to work out Your Gospel in our lives, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you probably know that Sam and I were in Atlanta this last week for General Assembly, the the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. We had headed down, or at least I had headed down Tuesday afternoon for meetings that were supposed to begin Wednesday. And as I checked into my hotel room and began to unpack my bag, I realized that I had forgotten to pack socks. So here I am in Atlanta in a hotel and at meetings that require a considerable amount of walking, and I have no socks. And so, I have to say, it's not a major tragedy. Uh, socks aren't that hard to come by in Atlanta. I, I'm sure I could have figured out something, but I was without socks. Now, what if, what if I had been on a different sort of trip? What if I had been on an expedition to climb Mount Everest? when I discovered that I had failed to pack some vital provision. In such a circumstance, the the failure to pack appropriately, the failure to, to take what was needed for the journey would not have been a minor inconvenience, but it could have been a life 
threatening failure. What I want us to see this morning is that when the road that we have been called to walk is a hard road, having the right provisions is of the utmost importance. And what we need to understand is that the road that God has called us to walk, the road that He has called us to travel, the race that He has marked out for us, it is a hard road. It is a difficult road. And so we need to know, as we undertake this journey as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to know where our provisions will come from. Will we have what we need for the work that we have been called to do? That is the question before us this morning. It's the question that I think Jesus is addressing. I, I want to begin by actually going back into last week's text, because if you were here last Sunday, you know we didn't actually get to finish that. And so I want to begin by going back into last week's text, because it's there that we see the journey that we have been called to. And then in this week's text, we will see the provisions that have been promised. So let's begin with last Sunday's text, verses 31 through 34. And you'll remember that if you were here, that in our study of that passage, we saw first that Peter was weak because he thought he was strong. Peter thought he had what it took to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he promised his undying allegiance to Jesus. And because he was confident in himself, he was actually weak. And that was a dangerous place to be because not only did he have a hard road in front of him, but he actually had a strong enemy against him. He had one whom he would later describe as a roaring lion seeking to destroy him. So how did Peter survive? How did he endure such a situation, a, a, a situation of great weakness, standing against one of great strength? Well, as we saw last Sunday, G, Paul, uh, Peter was able to survive that situation because Jesus had prayed for him. Jesus had, had come alongside him as his intercessor. Jesus had called out to the Father that his faith might not fail. And it's that place that I want to pick up the story this morning, because this morning I want us to see what happens after Jesus has prayed for Peter. Look with me again at verse 32. After saying that Satan has demanded to have Peter and that, that he might sift him like wheat, Jesus says this, he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned... Strengthen your brothers. Listen to that again. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The first thing I want you to see in that is just the jarring juxtaposition of, of Jesus' statements. On the one hand, he, he says to, to Peter, Your faith will not fail. And then almost without catching his breath, he turns to him and says, and when you have turned again. Think about what that, that means. In order to turn again or in order to turn back, at some point you had to turn away. So what is Jesus saying? He's, he's clearly saying that Peter is going to turn away because it's going to be necessary for him to turn back. So Jesus is saying that his faith will not 
fail, at least not fully or, or finally, but Peter will fail. And Peter understands that this is what Jesus is saying because notice he, he objects to it quite strenuously. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to, to death. But in response, Jesus only makes his prediction more pointed. He says to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus knows. He has predicted. He has, he has said with his divine authority that Peter will deny him. Peter will fail as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But what we need to see is that as far as Jesus is concerned, that failure will not define him. Peter's final victory is, is secure. Jesus has prayed for him. His faith will not fail. But the, the final victory of Peter does not mean that he will not stumble along the way. His, his final victory does not preclude the possibility of, of even serious failures here and now. His faith will not fail fully or, or finally, but he will fail, and in terrible ways. And I believe that each of us needs to see this this, this morning because we will all have our Peter moments. We will all have those moments when we fail, when we turn away from Jesus, when we deny that He is our Lord. This is what it is to sin. When we sin, we are functionally announcing that Jesus is not our Lord. We are functionally announcing that we will do our own thing, that we will do what is right in our own eyes, that we will go our own way, that we will serve our own interests. This is what it is to, to sin against God. This is why Sproul refers to it as, as cosmic treason against our king. We all know what it is to fail. We all know what it is to, to deny our Lord. And we need to see that at such moments, while we have failed, it does not mean that our faith has failed. We need to understand that such moments do not necessarily belie our profession or show us to be unbelievers. We need to see that such moments of failure do not necessarily prove that we are separated from Christ and without God or without hope in this world. Yes, they, they show us to be sinners. But Jesus came to save sinners. And you need to understand that that He is not finished with us does not mean that He is not at work in us. We need to know this first of all. We will fail. We will stumble. We will have our Peter moments. But it does not mean that we are not His. It does not mean that He is not at work within us. But secondly, we also need to know how we should respond to such moments of failure. And we see it again in what Jesus says. Notice what He says. He says, when you have turned again. That is it. That's what Peter is supposed to do. He is supposed to turn again. 
When he has fallen, when he has failed, he is to turn back to his Lord. And it is what we must do as well. The failure does not define us as one separated from Christ, but it does remind us that we must turn back to him when we have in our foolishness turned away. How do we respond to our failures? We turn. We, we turn back. We repent. And to repent is to turn from our sins back to God with the full purpose of endeavoring after new obedience. This is the life of a believer. This is the life that we are called to. We are called to daily. Not, not once at the beginning of our life, but, but every day for the rest of our lives. We are called to turn from our sin to God. Declaring Him to be our King and our Lord. And bowing before Him as the one who will rule every moment of our days. This is what we are called to. This is how we are to respond to our failures. We're not to despair as one who has no hope. Your hope is in Jesus. His work is complete. His work is perfect. Of course you have hope. You were never walking with Jesus. You were never counted as, as God's child because you had earned it. You have always been counted only in Christ, only by His righteousness. And when you prove yourself to be a sinner in need of that grace, go to that grace again. Turn back to Him in humble reliance upon His loving mercy and steadfast love. And begin again to walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the life of the believer. It is a life of perpetual, ongoing obedience and repentance until he brings to completion that good work which he has begun in us. And so the first thing we see here is that, that our failures do not mean that Jesus is not at work, but they do mean that we need to repent. And the third thing I want you to see in this is simply this, that when you have repented, you are to resume your mission. You are to resume the service to which you have been called. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is the charge that, that Jesus gives to Peter. This is the charge that Jesus gives to Peter, knowing what he is about to do. He says, you who are about to deny me three times, even before dawn, you who are about to deny me, when you have repented, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Get back to work. Resume your service. There are at least two things that I think we need to see in this. The first thing we need to see is, is simply the fact that, that Jesus puts Peter back to work. If, if you have repented, if you have returned to him, he has work for you to do. But more than this, I want you to see, I want you to see that, that Jesus intends to use even our failures to equip us for the service that he has for us to do. Now we have to be careful at this point. We, we must not fall into the trap of saying that we have to fail in order that we can serve God well. You don't go indulge in sin so that you can minister to sinners. That's not at all what Jesus has in mind here. He's not encouraging us to sin that his grace might abound. 
Jesus never sinned, and yet he was the servant par excellence. If Jesus can serve without sinning, so can we. But, but what we need to see is simply this, that Jesus can redeem our failures. Jesus can take what are our moments of weakness, what are our greatest struggles, and he can use them to equip us for the service that he has for us to do. It's a truly amazing thought when you stop to think about it. Here, here in God's mysterious economy, he is able to use even our failures, even our weaknesses, even our most glaring omissions. Is he able to use them to accomplish his purposes? And so if you have failed, and let's be honest, who of us hasn't, you need to know that you are not relegated to warming the bench on God's team for the rest of your life. Well, I know I'm in because I'm saved by grace, but there's really nothing I can do. You know, I'll just sit over here on the far corner of the bench and try not to get in anyone's way. That's not the way it works. That's not the way that, that God works. In fact, not only are you not relegated to warming the bench, you're not even relegated to right field. You're not relegated to going out where they hope the ball never goes. He has service for you to do. Strengthen your brothers, Jesus says. Do important work. Use your failure so that you might comfort others with the comfort that you yourself have received. This is what we have been called to. We, as failures, have been called to serve other failures, that we might encourage one another towards greater maturity in Christ, that we might spur one another on to love and good works. This is our service. This is our, our mission. And I think it's a, a perfect introduction to the passage before us this morning because here in the passage before us this morning, Jesus is, is speaking to Peter and to the other disciples and he is telling them, listen, this work that I have for you, this, this mission that I've, I've sent you on, I need you to know that while it sounds daunting and while it may sound like it's more than you can handle, you need to know that you will not lack anything you need to accomplish the work that I have given you to do. That's what this text is about. It's exactly where Jesus begins. Notice the first thing I want you to see in the passage before us this morning there in verse 35 is that Jesus is teaching his disciples that because of his good father's provision, they may rightly expect to have everything they need to do the work that they have been given to do. We, we see it there. Notice what Jesus asks. He says, when I sent you out with no money bag or, or knapsack or, or sandals, did you lack anything? Remember the story. It's back in, in Luke chapter 10. This is where Jesus is sending out his, his disciples on what we might describe as an internship. They are, they are doing some mission work before they have to begin sort of their full vocation. And Jesus sends them out, but he sends them out with some rather strange instructions. He, he sends them out saying, don't take anything for the journey. Don't just forget your socks. Forget your sandals. Don't take anything with you as you go out to, to preach the gospel. But when Jesus sent them out that way, even though they took nothing, they lacked. Nothing. It's what the disciples say. We, we lacked nothing. 
The point is, is rather obvious, isn't it? What is Jesus teaching them? He was, he was teaching them that if they go with God, in God, they have everything they need. In God, they have everything they need for that which they have been called to do. That was the point. That was the, the, the message that, that Jesus wanted to, to sink down deep into their hearts. But now, what Jesus says next might suggest that Jesus is no longer going to provide for all their needs. Look what he says in verse 36. Jesus says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and, and buy one. For I tell you, the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And so previously, Jesus has said, take nothing and you will have everything. But now he says, but man, I'm about to be numbered among the transgressors. So you better take your money bag and you better take your, your knapsack. I don't know about you, but when, you, when I first read those words, it almost sounds as if, as if Jesus is saying that because he is about to be betrayed, and because he is about to be crucified as a, as a common criminal, that God is no longer going to be able to provide for their needs, so they better start looking out for themselves. It's what it, what it sounds like. They, they, they need to prepare. They need to pack. They, they need to buy a sword if they don't already have one. I hope that sounds strange to you. I hope when you, when you read it that way, you're like, well, that can't be what it means. And that's the way you actually ought to read Scripture. We, we sometimes make a big deal about reading one verse and only saying what this one verse means, but that's actually not a good way to read the Bible. You have to read Scripture within the context of all of Scripture. Yes, you want to know what's being said here, but if what you think this is saying contradicts with what the Bible says everywhere else, then you might want to... Begin again. You might want to ask, well, is there, is there another way that we can read this text? And so, so we say right up front, listen, Jesus cannot be saying that God is no longer going to provide for his disciples' needs. That might make sense here, but it's, it's out of accord with what the scriptures say everywhere else. There has to be another reading, and I think there is. I think what we must understand is that Jesus is, is not intending to contrast God's provision for their previous mission with his lack of provision for their current mission. That's, that's not the point that Jesus is making. Actually, he's making the opposite point. Jesus reminds them of the divine provision that they experienced on their previous journey in order to assure them that they can expect the same sort of provision on their future journeys. He, he reminded them of what God had done in the past so that they would be confident of what God would do for them in the future. It's the kind of logic that we see throughout the Psalms. How often do we see the psalmist remembering, looking back upon what God had done for his people in the past? Lord, when we were in the wilderness, you led us. You led us to water. You led us to a city. When we were in slavery in Egypt, you, you brought us out. And therefore, Lord, even though it doesn't look like it in the present, even though we don't understand what you were doing, we will trust you because you have proven your character in the past. It's exactly what Jesus is, is doing here. He is saying to them, listen, when I sent you out before, you lacked nothing. And therefore, you can believe, you can trust. That when I send you out now, you will lack nothing. 
This is the first and really fundamental lesson that Jesus wants his disciples to learn. It's the, it's the fundamental lesson that we must learn. We need to hear and receive Jesus' assurance that as his disciples, we will never lack the provision we need to do the work that we have been given. Now let me be clear, because a statement like that can be easily misunderstood, especially in our modern context. This does not mean that true disciples will never experience want of any kind. It does not mean that we will never lack the resources that we wished we had. But rather, it means that true disciples of Jesus will never lack what they need to glorify and enjoy Him in the present. Sometimes, in God's mysterious providence, we will be called to glorify God by enduring want, by enduring hardship. Sometimes it will be the want of, of material provision. We just simply won't have the, the funds to do what we want to do. Other times, our lack won't be material, but it will be health. We won't lack, we won't have the health that we think we need to, to serve Him well. Other times it will be fellowship. We will not have the friends surrounding us to encourage us to, and to, to buoy us that, that, that we can do what we feel like we've been called to do. Or sometimes it will even be the freedom. Catherine talked about the lack of freedom in, in China and we sometimes wonder if we're beginning to see the, 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 the loss of our freedoms here in the United States. God will sometimes call Jesus' disciples to glorify Him, not with all the resources that they could imagine, but by enduring the lack of the resources they think they so desperately need. But think about it. If your goal, if your calling, if your ambition is to glorify Him, then as his servants, we will be content to glorify him in the manner in which he calls us to do so. This was, this was Paul's experience. He said, I am, I am good with plenty and I am good with want. If he gives me plenty, I will live for Christ. If he causes me to endure hardship, I will live for Christ. Whether I have plenty or whether I have nothing, my life will bring glory to him. And that must be our mindset as well. And with that mindset, we can go forward knowing that we will never lack the provisions that we need to do the work that we've been given to do. That is our confidence. But of course, that still leaves us with the question. If the contrast in this text is not between God providing for them in the past and God not providing for them in the future then what is the contrast? Because you can't deny that there's a contrast here. Jesus says, but now. He, he's clearly contrasting something from the past with something in the future. So what is different? What has changed? What is the contrast? And I would suggest to you that the contrast that Jesus is drawing is the contrast in the manner of God's provision. On their previous mission, God provided for his disciples how? 
He, he provided for them supernaturally. They took nothing, and yet they lacked nothing. And Jesus sent them out in order to learn that they could rest in God's provision and protection. That they, they could learn that, that God was enough. That He was willing and able to provide for their every need. However, from this point forward, Jesus is teaching His disciples that, that God's provision will come in far more ordinary ways. God will not continue to provide for them in supernatural ways as He did in the past. Yes, He will continue to provide for them, but from now on it will come through ordinary avenues. One commentator compares the transition to the Israelites moving into the Promised Land. Think about how God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. He dropped bread from heaven. That's a pretty good system. That, that, that works well. You, they may have gotten tired of bread after a while, but, but you know, bread from heaven is a pretty good way for God to provide us with our daily bread. But that all stopped when they entered the Promised Land. Did that mean that God was no longer providing for them? Did that mean that God was no longer giving them their daily bread? Of course not. But now God was going to provide for them through far more ordinary ways. Now let me just say it. God can still provide in supernatural ways when he wants to. He's God. We're not against that. We, we don't not believe in that. God can do what he wants. But ordinarily, ordinarily, God uses ordinary means. And this is what Jesus wanted his disciples to learn. He had, he had sent them out to experience God's supernatural provision so that they could see it and learn to, to rest in it. But now that they know it, they need to look for it in the ordinary course of life. Jesus' instructions to his disciples in, in Luke chapter 10 were never meant to be universally, eternally binding. This is not how we are supposed to send out missionaries today. But rather, we are to be wise. We are to plan. We are, we are to, to think about what we might need. And we are to, to try to gather together those least resources. Let the one who has a money bag take it. Let the one who has a knapsack get it and take it with him. This is the way that we are to move forward as God's disciples. Yes, we, we trust him to provide, but we are also wise as we seek to serve him. This is the second point that I think we are to learn, that in, in today's context, as, as the church of, of God, today, yes, we believe in a God who can provide supernaturally, but we believe in a God who ordinarily works in ordinary ways. And so we ask Him to provide for us in, in ordinary ways, and we seek to be wise in, in gathering the resources that He has put around us. But there's still one more detail, I think, that requires explanation. Look with me again at verse 36. Jesus says, And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. If the previous statement can be misunderstood, then, then this statement can really be misunderstood. The money bag, the knapsack, the, the sandals that they were forbidden to take with them on their first evangelistic mission those were literal objects. Those were literal money bags, literal knapsacks, literal sandals. And therefore, it would seem likely that Jesus here is talking about a literal sword. 
And if he's telling them to get a literal sword, then that would seem to suggest that Jesus is commanding the disciples to be prepared to defend themselves with physical force. But again, I hope that seems strange to you. I hope as you're reading through this, you're like, well, that's probably not right. Why, Why is that probably not right? Well, think about it. When Peter does exactly that in the garden in just a few paragraphs, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, that a boy, Peter. But he rebukes him. He tells him to put the sword away. And he heals the damage that, that Peter had done. And as we move into the book of Acts, we not once, we never see the disciples taking up physical swords in order to defend themselves. And they had ample opportunity. They were persecuted. They were opposed. They were stoned. They were beaten. They had ample opportunity to defend themselves with physical force, and yet never do we see them fight back with literal swords. And therefore, given all that we know about who Jesus is and about the, the nature of the church that he established, it seems impossible that Jesus is telling his disciples to get literal swords for the purpose of literally fighting to defend themselves with physical force. Why then does Jesus tell them to get a sword? Well, it seemed that he is trying to, to teach them something about the nature of the work that they have been called to do. Jesus is telling them that the work they've been given, the work they've been called to, is dangerous work. It is, it is work that will elicit the, the violent opposition of not only their spiritual enemy, Satan, but of the world. Jesus himself is about to be numbered among the transgressors. Jesus himself is about to be treated like a common criminal. And his disciples should expect nothing different. As Jesus said elsewhere, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? What is Jesus telling his disciples? He is, he is telling them that they are about to face violent opposition. That does not mean that they must be prepared to fight back with physical force. That possibility is precluded by the rest of Scripture. But it does mean that they are in for a real fight. In fact, I, I think that it was probably Paul reflecting upon this idea that, that led him to describe the armor of God that every believer must put on. He says it quite plainly. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting using physical force against physical enemies, but we better be prepared to fight. And that's exactly how he described himself at the end of his ministry. He said, I have fought the good fight. We must be prepared with the helmet of salvation. We must be prepared with the, the breastplate of righteousness. We must have the armor of the gospel on, prepared to face an enemy who will oppose us. And we must take in hand the sword of the Spirit and those firm promises upon which we stand as we go into battle to do the work that we have been called to do, the work of loving God and loving neighbor, both by word and by deed. The disciples clearly don't 
get this. Notice how they respond when, when Jesus tells them to buy a sword. They, they actually start taking stock and they go to Jesus. Hey, we've got two. And Jesus, in exasperation, says, enough. Enough. Jesus knows that they don't yet get it. He, he's not telling them, yes, two, that should be plenty. But rather, as a, as a parent says to his children, when they clearly don't get it, enough. Enough of this. Jesus knows that while this is his last word, it is not the last word. He knows that he will soon be sending the Holy Spirit who will lead them into all truth. He, he knows that before long they will get it. And before long they will enter the fight, dressed in the armor of the gospel, to wage war on behalf of their master, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of darkness. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must know that we have also been called into a fight. The service that we have been called to, the, the service of loving God and loving neighbor, will bring us into opposition, and therefore we must arm ourselves. We must be prepared to fight. But we must be prepared knowing that his provisions will be enough. That's what we've seen this morning. We've seen that as, as disciples of Jesus Christ, even though we are failures, even though we regularly fall on our face, God has called us into the service of his kingdom. He intends even to use our failures to accomplish his good purposes. And we've seen that he promises that in that work we will have everything we need. He will not always provide it supernaturally, though he can, but rather he will use ordinary means to provide us with everything we need, whether that is strength to endure lack, or whether that is an abundance of provision. Either way, he will give us everything we need to glorify and enjoy him now. And he warns us that that endeavor to glorify Him will bring us into opposition with a powerful enemy. And therefore, we must be prepared to fight. But we fight as those who trust in the Lord our God, the Maker of heaven and earth, who is our perfect helper. He is our refuge. And therefore, we can do all that He has called us to do, confident in Him. Confident that in Him, we will be able to do and accomplish all that he has given us to do. And because such a sure and certain hope is ours in Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do come before you humbly now, asking that you would cause these truths to put down deep roots in our hearts. Father, teach us and remind us that, that you have called us into your service. Though we are failures, you will use us to serve other failures. And you will provide us with everything we need for that work which you have given us to do. Father God, may we stand upon this firm foundation to the glory of your name forever and ever. Amen.